Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. I think you guys are really going to love today's episode. Today's guest is my friend and super talented hairstylist, Taylor. She's actually been my hairstylist for years, and she was my stylist through the COVID lockdowns. And in California, as in most states, I think, but definitely in California, salons completely shut down and stylists were completely out of business. And during that time, with no external structure, Taylor's partying, which I would describe as like borderline recreational, like probably a little extreme and bingy, but, but, you know, not necessarily super problematic yet during the shutdowns without the external structure of a job to go to daily and unemployment money and cash clients coming in, her drug use significantly escalated and evolved into her selling cocaine and things started to really spiral for her and get out of control. Sober now since March 8th of 2021, Taylor is coming on the show to share her story with us. And her story is another one that from the outside, like she was doing my hair, me, I'm in recovery. And there was a couple of things. There was one day in particular, we talk about it on the show where I thought like, this is like addicty kind of what was happening, but it's Taylor and she has a car and she's working and I've known her forever. And like all of those things, like the stuff that sometimes we stereotypically think an addict would lose. A lot of times we don't lose, right? And internally, and she says this, she was just crumbling on the inside. And so with zero consequences, no arrests, no real loss of anything, she decided to get sober anyway. And it's a great story. I think you guys are really going to love it. NodPod shout out of the week. This is Kristen S. An Apple podcast review. Title, love this podcast, exclamation point. This podcast is my favorite. I appreciate how honest Janine and Nate are. I've never related more. Your podcast keeps me going. It gets through to me in a way that other recovery stuff doesn't. I've gone back and listened to every episode and look forward to the day a new episode comes out. Thank you for being real and sharing your story. Kristen, thank you so much for your kind words. That is exactly what Nate and I try to do. Completely raw, authentic. I don't even do a whole lot of editing. Like what we say is what goes out because I think that what comes from the heart enters the heart. And I'm glad to hear that our manner of speaking and our manner of sharing is resonating with you. Thank you so much for your words. As always, NodPod, let me know what you think of the episode and I hope you guys have a great week. Welcome back, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name is Janine. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. My name is Nate. My sobriety date is December 3rd, 2022. Yes, sir. Yeah. Every week I'm like... I always forget. It's so hard. I know, I know, I know. I'm I know. Like, uh, well, it's new. It's different. Yeah, you know what I mean? What's my name again? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm super excited to have my friend and hairdresser, Taylor. And so occasionally I get comments on social media about my hair. Like, remember that person was like, why is this girl's hair always on fleek? The reason is because of, is because of the woman that we're interviewing today, because my hair left to its own devices or my devices. And this is true. Literally looks like Taylor's grinning. Cause she knows this is true. It looks like six or seven Guinea pigs have died and I've stapled them to my head in various places. And that is the actual texture of my hair, if not for Taylor. Hi, Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. You were at an AA convention last night, so I understand you just got back at like three o'clock this morning. (coughs) I did. Yes. I was at a young people's AA convention uh, up in Anaheim. 
How was it? Was it fun? It was fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a rowdy event because it's yeah. a bunch of it's like thousands of young people that all come together to like do sobriety, which is really cool. Um, but got to catch some really cool panels about different aspects of sobriety, saw a really good speaker meeting, um, and then, you know, got to see a bunch of friends who aren't necessarily from where I live in San Diego. Um, you know, people from out of state, people from like Oregon and Florida and, you know, Georgia and like all over the United States come. Um, and so I have friends from like all over the United States essentially because of this, like, Alcoholics Anonymous conventions. Yeah, that's so that cool. I, and we, we can talk about this, but I think the key to your success, because you you so far are one and done, right? Which is very, very, very rare, right? This is Taylor's first shot. Oh, it's very fucking It's rare. super rare. So rare. And I think the it's reason crazy. it's been successful for you is because you, more than probably anyone else I know, I'm getting chills while I say it, you jumped headfirst into the fellowship side of AA, and you you had more friends in AA in two weeks than I have in 20 fucking years. You know what I mean? It was like this, this girl, this girl, this girl going to this women's meeting. Like you got so fully involved and active in the fellowship side of 12 step. And I think that that's been like, I think that's been a huge part of your success. Yeah. I mean, what's crazy is like before I got sober, like years before I got sober, probably eight or nine years before I got sober. Um, I actually had a group of friends who were in AA and, um, I would even show up to meetings with them. And oh, that's right. Like, we had some mutual friends and they were some yeah. of my friends that were sober. That's right. Yeah. So I know people who have like 10 plus years of sobriety who stayed sober since I met them. And like, I would go to meetings with them. I would go to like events for AA with them. And I had no idea what AA was. I would go to, like, I didn't, I never asked questions. I would go to these meetings with them, like drinking or high. Right. And I would just be like. <laughs> I'm really happy for you that like you are dealing with this problem you say you have. Congratulations. (laughs) And, um, and I remember hanging out with them and one of my friends actually said to me, and I I've remembered this and I I'll never forget it. He said to me, he was like, one day you'll be here with us. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm here right now. (laughs) And he was like, no, no, no. Like you'll actually be here. And I didn't understand what that meant until I got sober and I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm, I got it. I finally got it. It took me nine years, but like, Oh, I am actually here now. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Well, let's talk about that. Let's get into your story. Um, so just let us give us a little background on like where you're from and how you started using and then your progression until when you finally stopped. Yeah. Um, so Backs like my so my sobriety date is March eighth, twenty twenty one. So I'm almost pretty close. I'm almost exactly a month away from having two years, yep. um, which does not seem scientifically possible to me. It doesn't seem possible to me either because I remember you texting me. You posted you had ninety days, and she's been my hairdresser <laughs> for years. And I was like, wait, what? And you were like, yeah, I have a lot to tell you. But anyway, okay. so, so go back, go back. <laughs> But yeah, so um, I mean, I started. So I mean, I grew I grew up in an alcoholic home. Um, so like, my mother is an alcoholic, and she also dabbled in various drugs. And um, I mostly had she mostly had custody of me. Um, I saw my dad a couple days a month, um, and he drank and whatnot too. And so it was just like from the time I was very very young, um, 
I essentially took care of myself and like, you know, like I would get my mom up to take me to school. And if she couldn't get me up or couldn't get up, then like I would walk myself to school and like walk home and, you know, just kind of like learned how to like make myself dinner and how to put myself to bed and like all those things. And so, I mean, I started drinking very early. I think I was about 11 or 12. Um, you know, I used to hang out with a group of kids and I would go to this girl's house and I really went there because I liked her older brother. And, you know, I had these like little, the little glass wine coolers that taste like fruit punch and had like the tinfoil on top. Um, and yeah, yeah. They gave me those and like, you know, to a 12 year old, like that's plenty. Um, you know, and, and in my home where I, where I grew up, like I also dealt with not only dealing with being in an alcoholic home and and the emotional abuse that comes with that, but I also dealt with a lot of like physical child abuse. Um, and so like, I, I never really had a safe space. And so when I started drinking, it wasn't like this big, like some people talk about this big aha moment you know, where they, they take a first drink and they're like, I knew I had, I knew I had found my solution. Um, that wasn't it for me. I started drinking and what happened was I was finally comfortable in my skin. I was like, I had a great time. And in reality, like what really happened for me is like all the stuff in the back of my head, all the worry about my mom and you know, what was going to happen when I went home and all these other things like that all turned off, you know, and I just had a, I just had a good time. And And that was kind of the ticket for me is I was like, oh, if I do these things, like all of the little like nagging stuff in the back of my head, it finally, it finally goes away, you know? Um, And I'm just fun. And, and I liked that. And so my progression was pretty quick. I, um, within, by the time I was in like late middle school, early high school, like I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. I smoked weed every morning. I would have a homeless dude buy me forties, like after school. (laughs) And we like hung out in this like canyon and like a bush, like, (laughs) you know, after school. And I grew up in South San Diego. I grew up in National City. Most of the kids that I hung out with, like they all smoked weed. We all drank like it was very normalized. There was nothing. um, I didn't have a group of friends that were like, oh, like you probably shouldn't do that. You know, in fact, like. I was sometimes like the odd one out in my group of friends because I was really good at school and I got good grades and they were like, how do you pass a math test? Like, I don't know how you do this. And yeah. And so, you know, by the time I got to like graduating high school, I mean, my home life started to deteriorate a lot more. My mom's alcoholism kind of like hit a higher point. Um, And so like I was at a point where in high school, like I would pack a bag on Friday morning and I would go to school and I wouldn't usually come home until like Monday after school, you know, and, and I was like 14, 15 years old, you know, going to like underground raves and, you know, like riding the bus and walking around like National City and San Isidro by myself. And, um, you know, I was dating a dude who would provide me with like extreme amounts of ecstasy and weed and whatever I wanted, you know? And so it was like, I, I just kind of like ran amok. Um, and there was nobody to really stop me. Like my mom, you know, I realize now like she did the best that she could with the tools that she had, but like, and I know that she cared and she loved me, but she just didn't have the ability to like be a parent at that time. 
Um, and my dad was, was not very much in the picture. Like he, he would try, but he had limited custody of me cause he gave it up when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, by the time I was 16 years old, I had already like detoxed from stimulants once because I got caught by my parents and they put me on like parental house arrest for like six months. <laughs> I basically just got super yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Where they looked through my MySpace messages and were like, what is this? <laughs> when MySpace was a thing. Um, Dude, I never did the MySpace thing, though. Even though that was like my age I group or whatever. Why do you feel I'm old? So you should old. That was so long ago. Although, actually, Taylor's probably <laughs> the only guest we've ever had younger than you, huh? How old are you again, Taylor? What are you, like 24 or something crazy? No, I'm 27. <laughs> 27. Okay. In my mind, you will always be however old you are when I met you, which was like 22 or 23. And I remember after, I like, you've been so. doing my hair for a while. At some point, you were like, oh, yeah, no, I only just turned 22. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? I've been telling you, yeah. you did. you're only 21 years old. I thought you were so much older. Did you Thank do MySpace? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't do MySpace. I was pretty fucked up, though. I was in LA in my 20s, and I just didn't even do it. I never even, like, made a pitch. I had nothing yeah, to do. Yeah, I feel like MySpace, <laughs> MySpace got popular was at, when I was in, like, middle school, you know? Um, okay. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I had already, like, stopped, like, I had already quit one particular drug by the time I was 16 years old, right? Like, I had already had to detox from ecstasy because I was doing, like, 10 pills of ecstasy a week for, like, a year um and I got to the point where like I could barely function like talking to people like you know they talk about how it puts holds in your brain I felt like it did yeah um and you know and I I had finally had one final like very um traumatic fight with my mom and so I packed up all my stuff and I moved in with my dad who lived uh in North County San Diego and um and I didn't say bye to her she didn't say bye to me. I don't think I talked to her for like almost a year okay. um, after that. And and I moved up to North County with my dad. And my dad was much more, when I lived with him, much more of a stronger parental figure. Okay. Um, my dad is definitely like an old school type of parent. And so I had a lot more structure when I got up there, but I was still the same at this point. Like I had spent the first 16 years of my life like doing, you know, whatever. And so even though I had a lot more structure and a, and a parent who was really trying to care for me, it was almost kind of like too late at that point, okay. you know? Um, so when I got to North County, like I had a brief amount of time where I didn't really have too many connections and friends yet. Um, but it was very quickly that like I found the same type of people, you know, and I fell in with the same group of people just in a different place you know, cause I was still the same. And so I, I found the kids that wanted to smoke weed and drink after school and, and run around and party on the weekends. And, um, but now I was in a new place and now I was still the odd man out because I came in at the beginning of junior year and I didn't know anybody. And I had always just desperately really wanted to fit in and feel a part of, cause I never felt like I fit in. Um, and I never felt like I was accepted cause I wasn't accepted at home and I, and I didn't feel like I fit in outside of it. And so I, I became this like chameleon of like whatever it was that you wanted, you know, um, if you wanted a girl who drank, who would drink Mickey's with you, then I was going to do that. If you wanted me to drink vodka, like, cool, I'm going to drink that. Um, if you wanted to like do hallucinogens, like, all right, let's go. You know, um, we wanted to snort cocaine. Cool. Like, um, you know, the only thing I never really touched or did was like use needles. Yeah. So when I'm, when I moved to North County, like I became 
what everybody wanted, which was, you know, they wanted a place to party and they wanted somebody to help them do it. And so, you know, my dad would leave because he was single at the time and he would, you know, get a girlfriend and they'd go on a weekend trip or something like that. And I would throw these massive parties at my at my house. Um, and I was always down to like have everybody come over. And I, you know, I found out very early on too that like if I could sell drugs, then everybody wanted me at their party. Um, you know, everybody wanted to be my friend and talk to me if I was going to be able to provide something for you. So I provided the place to party. I would sell weed. I would sell hallucinogens. I would sell whatever it is that I could find. Um, and plus, like, if I'm being honest, I really liked making money. Like I, I enjoyed that it was a lucrative business. Um, oh yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. Nate was selling dope really young too, yeah, right? Uh, Weren't you really yeah, young? Yeah, I was in high school. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like junior, senior year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like being sixteen and being able to like sell a sheet of acid at school, you know, and I would pay, you know, a certain price for it, and I would make three times that by selling it, and I was like, wow, this is this is better wild. than a job. Y'all would have been scaring me in high school. I know who you two are, <laughs> and I would have been afraid of both of you in the hallway when I was. Wasn't even like that though. It wasn't <laughs> even like no. It was not even like that though. No, it not even scary. Yeah. Just even the concept of like if I knew that you were selling drugs. Oh, I would be okay, yeah. I was like, not like you were threatening yeah, people. Yeah, like, we're not if that still would have scared you me. You know, typically we don't. We just want to beat people up. It's not. No, no. no. <laughs> you know? I was going to say usually your drug dealer is the friendliest person because we right. want you to buy from us. Yeah. But I also I always really wanted to be cooler than I was. And if you guys were selling drugs, I would have thought you were cool. Right. And I was like, kind of, I wasn't like nerdy in high school, but I a little bit was academically. And so I would have seen you guys as like cooler than me. And that would have been intimidating. Not like fear of like right. violence, yeah. but like See, just like so a little funny. bit. It's so funny that you say that because, right, I never really pictured, like I desperately wanted to fit in with the kids that I thought were cool. Right. You know? And so like. I didn't really think that I was that I was cool at all. Like I just wanted I desperately wanted to fit in with them. Yeah. You know, cuz I thought that they were cool cuz they had all these friends and everybody called them all the time and I was like, why doesn't everybody ever hit me up except when they need something? Um oh, yeah. and it was literally because I put myself in that position. Right, yeah. You know, I made myself the person that people only called when they needed something. Yeah. So you did graduate high school though, right? You finished? I did. When did you start yep. wanting to get into hairstyling? Because by the time I met you, you were already working. So you you jumped into this, right? You must have already known you wanted to do that. Um, Kind of, sort of. Not really, actually. So I graduated high school. I actually did one semester at college, um, mm-hmm. but I was not prepared. Like, I, I had no discipline. So, yeah. like, I barely went to class. Like, they were like, you have to be responsible for it. And I was like, well, then I'm not going to be. <laughs> Um, <laughs> why would I show up if nobody's going to call my dad when I'm not there? Right. Um, exactly and, <laughs> and so, um, I just stopped going to all my classes. I'm pretty sure I failed every single one. I never even dropped out. I just like never showed up to college again. Um, <laughs> and I worked two jobs in the restaurant industry and my dad was like, you have to do something. Like, I'm not going to have you live here and and do nothing like you have to go to school or figure something out and he was like I don't care if you do a trade or whatever just do something um and my stepmom at uh, my now current stepmom um she's the actually the one who suggested it she was like you've done your friend's hair before and you do your own hair she's like why don't you go do that for a living and I was like oh yeah that's like a whole that's like a whole career like people do that (laughs) um 
and I hadn't even really thought of it. I was like, that's right. Like you can, you can like do a whole thing with that. And so I like enrolled in school, having no idea if I was going to be good at it, having no idea if I was going to like it. Like I dropped all the money to do it. I got student loans and I was like, all right, yeah, cool. We'll just do this. And then I just went to beauty school and I found out fairly quickly into, into going into it. I was like, oh, I'm actually good at this. Super good at this. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I was like, wow, I'm actually pretty good at this. Like, okay. And, and I started to develop a passion and a love for it as I learned how to do it. Okay. Um, so I didn't start with it. I didn't like have this idea of like, oh my God, I'm going to be a, a hairstylist. Like I just kind of fell into it because somebody was like, you should do this. And I was like, yeah, okay. And like my whole life up until I got sober, like I very much am what the big book has described as like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, like you've even seen it where like I, I kept a career, I kept a car, I paid my bills, like I graduated high school. I, I, on the outside and on paper, I looked like I had everything together. I wasn't homeless. Like I didn't lose everything. Um, and I didn't lose all my connections with people. Like my family didn't even really realize what was going on. Um, like they knew that I partied a lot and like my dad knew that I had previously done hard drugs, you know, and things like that. But they had no idea that like, just because I, I would go to work, like it was like, you know, I could, I could make it through a day of work, but like people at work didn't know that I was like doing Coke in the bathroom and I was still hung over from the night before. And I'd only slept two hours. Well, you know, I think that's what blew my mind when I found out. So, and we'll back up and kind of talk about how we got here, but during COVID Taylor was coming to my fitness studio while we were closed and doing my hair at the studio because I'm a bougie bitch Sick. and I was literally <laughs> paying her for, for visits to my business. And there was one day, and it was during the full shutdowns, so you had no salon to go to, right? And we would just be closed, mm -hmm. and we would pull a chair out to the middle of the TRX room and use the mirror. And she was texting me all morning. I think she was supposed to be there at, like, 11. Right. And she texted me yeah. at, like, 1045 and was like, hey, I'm running pretty late. I'll be there in, like, 30 minutes. And I was like, okay, that's unusual, but okay. And then 30 <laughs> minutes went by, and she was like, hey, I'm still way, way late, and I have no tools with me. <laughs> no, it's going to be another hour. And I was like, that's, and, and then I thought this is, you know, this is dope fiend shit, but it's Taylor. I know she's not doing drugs. She must just really be having a hard time. And then an hour went by and then you were like 20 minutes away, got some tools. And I was like, okay. And then she showed up, you showed up and you did my hair fine. And then I remember, and you told me later that this kind of like struck you as you were leaving I was like, hey, are you okay? You seem really sad. And that somehow like struck a chord in you at the time. But like, and it turns out you were using at that time. And so what happened was at some point during COVID, your Coke use seriously escalated, right? And that's how we got to today. So why don't you talk about that, about that, that escalation of Coke use? Because I've seen you every yeah. Friday for three years, because again, I'm a bougie bitch. And I have a membership at a hair salon. Wait, I, okay? have, I have one question. Can I just go ahead and ask it? Yeah. Because this, this yeah. is serious. This is real serious. What do women talk about when they get their hair done? <laughs> there is a chair hairstylist confidentiality agreement. Oh. <laughs> you guys don't have no NDA. Come on. Yeah, yeah. This, is a serious, this is a serious breach of confidentiality. Right. Okay, the, hair, the hair space. I was about to spill the beans. You're right. Okay, good, good, good. I think 
Okay. So let's talk about your escalating cocaine use during that time. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, yeah, that was, that was definitely like that last six months was for sure my ultimate downfall um, to where my use got to a point where like I could not save my face anymore, you know, Uh, because on that particular day, like I was on a bender, I had woken up at like somebody else's house and I knew I was supposed to do your hair and I didn't have anything. And I was like, still high and wildly hungover. And like, you know, I was, I was trying to keep it together, but because I I just didn't have any, I had no structure left because everything was shut down. And so that, that small amount of structure that kind of kept me a teensy bit in line was all gone now. That's fascinating. I wonder if that happened to a lot of people. So do you think that, that it, it was because of COVID that knocked your drug use into the unmanageable? Um, I can't fully blame COVID, right? right? Like, I feel like I eventually would have gotten there, but it okay. definitely like co-signed it for me. Sure. Okay. You know, I had an, un- I had, essentially I was on unemployment, so I, I had money coming in, but I had nowhere to go. And, and like, I couldn't do anything. And I literally reverted back to being like that 15, 16 year old girl who had no responsibility, Yeah. you know? Um, and that's what it felt like. And so And around that time, too, I had also started doing what I thought was like top tier employment because I um, I wasn't working at the salon. So like my next best career was to become a Coke dealer. Uh, And I was like, I have reached the height of employment. (laughs) Um, You know, in my head, that was like the coolest thing ever, Um, which sounds so funny to me now. And um So yeah, so I had, you know, I was, I was dealing cocaine at that point. So most of what I was using was essentially paid, like paid for by other people, you know, because I was selling it. You're just using up your profit. You weren't even really making money. Yeah, I wasn't even like, I made a little bit of money. but Most of what I made went back into like, it was almost like one of those things where I'd be like one for you and one for me. And oh, for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I would, I mean, towards the end, I would skimp people's bags. I'd be selling them quarters for 25. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to take it off like 0.5, you know, just a little. Actually, yeah, I was also, I was also that, I was also that person. I would, they would buy a gram for me and I would weigh out (laughs) 0.8. Oh, so yeah. that every so many I I sold, I had an extra gram for myself. Right. Um. Sorry. And then I gave you extra cash that day. You remember that? I told Skyler, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I told Skylar, I was like, she seems really sad. I think she's sad about the salon being closed. And so Skylar was like, yeah, I gave her like fifty extra bucks. And now I'm like, oh yeah. shit, that probably went straight up your fucking nose, dude. <laughs> it definitely did for sure. I was like, wow, that made me feel a whole lot better. Um, so, so what ended up happening? Because I know it yeah. gets real crazy. Your last day of use is real fucking crazy. So walk us up to yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, essentially, like I started dealing cocaine and, um, and like a lot of things that are happening right now, um, you know, people talk about, talk about fentanyl and talk about um, how, you know, drugs get laced and stuff like that. And I, I was not a responsible or good coke dealer in any way, shape, or form. Like, I was just an addict trying to, like, get my own fix and, like, and figure it out, you know? Um, And so I didn't test any of the drugs. I would tell people that I did, right? But I, I never did. And I was just like, well, my drug dealer says that they're fine and he's the most trustworthy guy I know. 
And so one day, you know, uh, very close to the end of my use, I picked up a like an ounce of cocaine and I was selling it to people and um, and it was laced. It was bad cocaine. And with fentanyl, mm-hmm, as far as I'm aware of or some or something close to it. And I'm to be honest, I never actually tested it. <laughs> I tested it on myself, but not with, you know, the proper use. Um, and I actually ended up getting sick and, and overdosing um, at home one day. Um, and that didn't that didn't stop me, which is crazy. Like I I I don't know if it was like I really don't know exactly what happened, if I'm going to be completely honest with you. Uh, but I know that like all of my bodily functions shut down. I blacked out. I woke up covered in sweat on my bathroom floor alone. Uh, and you might have over amped. That's what it sounds that's what it sounds it sounds like you over amped. What's that? It's just like when you do stimulants. You can do it on meth and coke and stuff like that. So it's like the over yeah. from a stimulant. Yeah. Yeah, you can do too much. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, and maybe that was it. Like I tell people like I use I've used the word overdose because I don't know what happened. Yeah, it's the same um, thing. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Okay. It's still an overdose it's just, of the yeah, substance. it's just a stimulant overdose is all it is. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is is like I woke up right on my bathroom floor I splashed my face with cold water and I was like wow that was really crazy and like I walked back into my room smoked some weed and did more lines you know um and and people around me who I was selling these drugs to started to get sick right you know and things started happening to them and I'm very grateful and I'm very lucky that nobody died um the only person as far as I'm aware of who got close to dying was myself I'm very lucky because, you know, my entire life or my entire situation could be completely different. I could be in federal prison right now for, for killing someone, you know, oh, it ain't no duck right now. So people started getting back to you because you started here, you started getting shit from people like, fuck you. Uh-huh. you killed me, right? Oh because yeah. I had, I had people who were very angry with me and rightfully right. so. Okay. Um, and, and so with that being said, like, you know, everybody, a, nobody wanted to buy my drugs anymore. Okay. Right. Um, and everybody was really, really, really mad at me. Okay. And um, and I was just I kind of got to this point where I was like, I don't want to be here. And so I took the rest of what I had and I went up to Long Beach. And this is my last like little bit of use. I went up to Long Beach um, to this girl's house that I was like kind of friends with, like we just kind of partied together. Like we didn't really have a very deep connection as friends. Like some dude, she was like living on his couch and, um, and they were like, yeah, come party up here for the weekend. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I took the rest of what I had and, um, which were the, the lace bad drugs that I knew were bad at this point. Uh, I went up there and I was like, all I thought of when I parked and I was walking to her house was like, I don't ever want to have to go back home. You know, like I don't want to exist here anymore. And I didn't really think of it as any type of like suicidal ideology. I just didn't want to physically exist where I was anymore, you know? And in reality, like dying kind of seemed a little bit easier than like dealing with all that shit, you know? Um, And like, so I went and I, and I drank the whole night with them and I did, you know, as much of the drugs that I had, I probably had a couple grams with me and I shared it with them. I told them what was in it too. And they were like, we don't care. Just like, just like rack it out. Um, and that almost kind of surprised me. I was like, really? You don't? Okay. Uh, and you know, and like my goal was to not have to like wake up and continue doing it again, right. you know? Uh, and, and I woke up the next morning, uh, on this dude's like living room floor and 
with like random people around me that I didn't know. And, and I was like, fuck, I'm awake, you know? Um, and, and we walked wildly hungover to the Roscoe's chicken and waffles in Long Beach. (laughs) And I sat on the patio and I drank like, I think it was like some sort of like fishbowl giant, like Long Island iced tea type thing. And I was just, I was so internally sad. I was so sad. And, and I knew I was going to have to drive back home and I just didn't, I didn't want to. I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Like, I can't, I was like, I can't do this anymore, but I didn't have any other option. You know, like I didn't, there was nothing else that seemed like I, so I just, I just drank that and I drove home, like kind of drunk, a little hungover, like, and I just, I just went to, I just went to my room and, and for two days, like I had no sobriety ideas, you know? Um, it wasn't that I wanted to get sober and even like being introduced sort of to AA before, like, I didn't even think of that really. Um, I just laid in my bed for two days and like cried and ate ice cream and detoxed, you know, and just like sweat it all out in my bed, horribly uncomfortable. Um, and, and then I went to work, right. Cause I had to make sure that I was like presentable and could pay my bills and, and seem good on paper. Um, and while I was at work that day, I was still kind of coming down and I was still shaky and just like kind of like on edge. And I had a best friend of mine, um, who had six months of sobriety and I had recently been connecting with her every so often because she had gotten out of her sober living and was like around again and she had six months and and I like I can only really put this up to like my own higher power doing this for me because there's no reason I should have texted her this right but I was sitting on my lunch break at work and she was like she was texting me and I and I just randomly out of the blue texted her I was like I think I need to do what you're doing I think I need to get sober like I can't I can't go on like this anymore and she was like oh okay. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like I'll come pick you up later. You know, we'll talk. And she had the same reaction to me as like you or anybody else did. When I finally sat down and got honest with her about everything that I was really doing behind the scenes, um, she was surprised. She was like, you never seem like the type, you know, you never seem like you had, had an issue. You know, I know that you, you partied a lot and you like to hang out at bars, but like, I didn't, I didn't realize it was like this. And I was like, you know, if I didn't want you to know that I was using that much, like you didn't know, um, unless you caught me kind of like you did, like in the middle of it. And she took me to my first meeting and my first meeting was the next day. And it was actually a heroin anonymous meeting. And I sat there wildly uncomfortable and I bummed cigarettes off of people and I didn't say really anything. And there are still people who are in my sobriety today who saw me on that very first day. Um, and I've been described when I got there, um, they said that I looked like roadkill that they had gotten off the sidewalk. <laughs> Hard challenge. I saw you at that time. I think you looked okay, but okay. Got it. And, um, your spirit was, was your spirit was dimmed physically. Oh. You looked the way you do right now. There was no outward signs to me and I'd known you for years. Yeah. But your spirit was like dim, you know? Yeah. I was internally crumbling. And I just listened to what these people had to say. And, and, you know, I remember her driving me home and I was like, you know, everybody like there was like sitting and laughing and talking to each other and like seemed genuinely happy. And I was so just tired, 
you know, I was just so, I was sad. I was tired. I hated myself. Uh, and I just like, I've just felt like so weak to life internally, you know? Um, and all these people were like, so confident and like happy to be there. And I was like, why are you guys so happy? Right. And, um, and she was like, yeah, like, you know, if you're going to work steps, like you gotta stay completely sober. Like you can't smoke weed. And I was like, I don't know how I'm ever going to go to sleep again. But, <laughs> and she was like, get some melatonin or something. You'll figure it out. And, um, and she started taking me to meetings and, um, and I pretty much like, I kind of didn't realize at first, but like, I really had to relearn how to do life sober because even though like I knew how to like pay bills and how to like keep my car and all that jazz, like I didn't know how to function in society. Cause from the time I started drinking when I was 11 or 12 until I was 25, when I got sober, I didn't go a day without doing something. Even if it was like I had a beer that day or I went and like smoked a little bit of weed. Like there wasn't a single day where I completely abstained from everything, you know, in all of that time. And so it was, it was a very big learning curve to learn how to like interact with people again. And like, like the smallest things were like big celebrations to me, you know, where I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I went out to dinner and I didn't drink or I, you know, I got through the whole work day or, you know, when I finally took my first trip, I was like, I sat on an airplane sober in my first 30 days, you know, and like, these were huge accomplishments, like going to a baseball game, like going to the movies and not putting a beer in my purse, like all of those things. Like I really had to relearn how to do everything without involving using in it. And then I got a sponsor and she, and she began to walk me through the steps. And like my first 30 days, um, my first 60 days actually were definitely a learning curve. I did not do the beginning of my sobriety correctly. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, actually I have two questions. How did you learn to do those things sober? When you say you had to learn how, do you mean you just did them sober and that's how you learned? Or did you hang out with sober people? How did you do it? Yeah. So, I mean, some of them, like I had to call my sponsor and be like, right. Like when I, so I already had a trip planned, like, cause I didn't plan on getting sober, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I already had a trip planned to go visit my sister on the East coast at the end of March. And I got sober March 8th. And, um, and I was like, I called her and my sponsor and I was like, I don't know, like I have an extreme fear of flying. Like I always take, you know, an opiate and some Jack Daniels and, and whatever else to like get me through this flight. <laughs> And I was like, I don't like, I have panic attacks on planes. Like I freak out crying, you know? Um, I was like, I don't think I can, I don't think I could do this. And she was like, you just get on the plane and you go. And I was like, I mean, I like on concept wise, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds reasonable, but um, see what you don't understand. <laughs> and she was like, no, I understand. Like you just got to sit down and, and enjoy your flight. And I was like, <laughs> So what did you fucking do? You didn't drink, obviously. Did you just sit down and fucking no, do it? I held the, I, I literally had this little like 24 hour chip that she gave me. And I still do this when I go on flights, except now it's my like one year chip. I held it in my hand and she was like, I don't care if you have to say the serenity prayer to yourself the entire time that you're on that flight, but you'll get through it. And I did like I sat there with this 24 hour chip in my hand and I said the serenity prayer a bunch of times. And surprisingly, it was it was kind of like a weird spiritual experience for me wow. um, okay. because I 
we start I we took off, which is the scariest thing for me, and we got to like your cruising altitude, and I remember like sitting there with this chip in my hand and saying the serenity prayer and all of a sudden like the plane leveled out and I was incredibly calm. Like I wasn't shaking, I wasn't crying, wow. and I realized that I had done it, right? That I had gone on this plane and that I wasn't completely obliterated by cruising altitude. And I sat there and I started laughing. Like, and I'm on this plane by myself. So like the people next to me are like, what's wrong with this weird chick? Like she's like saying stuff to herself and now she's laughing. And and I started laughing and then I started crying. And I was like happy crying. And I was like, oh my God, like, holy shit, I did it, you know? <laughs> and so it was just experiences like that where like, yeah. you know, whether I needed to my sponsor to hype me up and t- tell me that it was gonna be okay. Um or, you know, I hung out with sober people or I just I just went and did it. Like I I just kind of had to to go do it. And like I still to this day, whenever I get on planes, they still freak me out. I still don't enjoy flying. But I will still carry a chip in my pocket. I'll still put it in my hand. I'll still say the serenity prayer if I need to to myself. And like I have a blanket that I carry with me that just is fuzzy and makes me feel nice. I'm like <laughs> That's so cool. But those are like great those are great ways to manage that, you know? Yeah. I used to say the serenity prayer. I remember I was getting on the sprinter and I'd seen a connect like walking around and I only had 60 days or so. And I just started like closing my eyes and the sprinter came up and I needed to get on it and not go talk to him. Like that's what I needed to fucking do. And as I walked up to it, I was like, my feet are going to turn around. My feet are going to go see him. And I closed my eyes and I started like repeating the serenity prayer and just, it got me like through the doors into the seat and then the door shut. You know, mm-hmm. I actually forgot about that moment until you just said that. But I feel like that, like closing your eyes, like desperate prayer will work. Like if in a moment you need to get your feet somewhere else, like it will work. Yeah. And like, I didn't come into the program with, um, with any higher power God belief. Okay. Um, right. Like I was basically just handed the serenity prayer and being like, this is what you do now. And I was like, okay. Uh, and so that was like what I had at that time. You know, um, like I had a sponsor who had a pretty strong higher power and I was like, I believe that you have that. Um, but like, I, I didn't like the word God for a while. I didn't like the, what I thought was the religious aspect of it. I've realized now that it's definitely more of like a spiritual basis and like you could be religious or not and it's, it'll still work. But I didn't understand that whole concept at first. And I was like, oh, like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to church. Right, right, right. (laughs) Uh, and so when you were repeating the serenity prayer, if you didn't have a God concept yet, were you just saying the words? Cause that's what they told you to do. And it fucking worked anyways. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Like I, you know, I, I think that's have... great for people to hear. You don't have to believe you can just close your eyes and say the words and it'll work. You don't even yeah, have to and believe. And it was like, you know, I, I was like, I, you know, for me, I was like, there's, there's energy in the universe. Like this world is a lot bigger than me. Like that was basically all I had, you know? Um, and that was enough. And like, I'd been told that, you know, by people in the program, like your higher power can be anything, you know, I've had people say, this is like a funny concept to me, but like your higher power could be a stop sign because it's taller than you. It could be a lamp because the lamp is better at not drinking than you are, you know? <laughs> Fair. Um, and that always made me laugh. They were like, as like, whatever works, you know, it could be an inanimate object because the inanimate object can't get drunk and you don't want to get drunk. <laughs> like, right. Right. <laughs> Um, so when you say you did your first 60 days wrong, what do you mean by that? 
Because um, you didn't, obviously, because you stayed sober. So I'll challenge that. But what do you mean? I'm no, assuming you mean no. you made it harder than you had to. I definitely made it harder than I had to. Um, I, you get in a relationship? Huh? You get in a relationship? Um, not exactly. I got fired by my sponsor because her son was around my age and, and uh, thought I was really cute. And I thought it would be a good idea to sleep with my sponsor's son. Oh, that, shit. That's so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, <laughs> that's Taylor. Fucking, that's so great. Oh, no. Oh, I love this. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. The dirty. <laughs> I had less than 60 days. Don't judge me. I needed to be validated. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I get it. I no, yep. that's why he asked. He knew what was. Going. Oh, I knew what was. I knew. I knew. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was a really good idea. Um, it was. So not. she dropped you because you had sex with her son. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So like that, you know, not the smartest move. Um, on my part. Um, you know, and so like I, you know, I was still using behaviors that that I wasn't trying to do, you know, that weren't weren't the the smartest of moves. Um, And so it was between 60 and 90 days where I got my second sponsor, who is still uh, sponsors me. She sponsors me kind of part-time because she moved out of the state. Okay. And she lives on the East Coast now, so our time difference is is difficult. Um, But, you know, I, I had no idea who this woman was. Like, somebody just gave me her phone number, and they were like, yeah, call her, see if she'll sponsor you. And I was like, all right. And so I called her, and I was like, do you want to sponsor me? And she was like, well, I never, I never say no to sponsoring people. Like, sure. Let's meet up for dinner. Um, and she sat down and she talked to me and like, not only was her story different from mine, uh, but also like, I, I just immediately felt safe around this woman. Uh, and she, she just, she was just great. And she, um, she showed me over time, that eventually I could trust people again. And she showed me over time that, um, that like I was safe and cause I, I came into here not trusting anybody. Right. I was a drug dealer. I don't trust you. Um, y'all have an agenda like, mm-hmm. uh, and so, you know, and she, she brought about the concept where she was like, I understand that I'm your sponsor. Um, and I want you to trust me. She goes, but I'm going to show you that I will earn it. Um, and that was huge for me. You know, because I was so afraid of like telling her my personal stuff and, and, you know, people talking about it behind my back or, Mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, the whole world knowing what a shitty person I was and, and, um, and she didn't do that. Right. Cause that's not what the sponsor's for. And, and she showed me that and she walked me through the steps the way that she was taught to go through the steps. And she was very old school, like AA. Um, and she took me through the 12 steps the way that she learned and, um, and she changed my whole life. Like she, I love that woman. Um, I've gone out to the East Coast to like go visit her. Like I tear up talking about her. <laughs> um, Dude, I get it. And- Rachel, Rachel changed my whole life. <clears throat> my fourth step to her and she held me while I cried, you know, oh, and like, yeah. you know, and I didn't cry in front of people because I, I was not raised that way. And so like me doing that was incredibly vulnerable for me. And like, she didn't tell me, you know, by me sitting there crying about, you know, my issues that, um, that I was weak or that I was dumb or that I was stupid or, or like, you know, it wasn't that like, stop crying. I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) Like, 
you know, like it was like she was so loving and caring and she was like, we'll get through it. Like, if you need to cry, cry like I'm here for you. Um, And she was also very real with me. Like she did not beat around the bush when it came to anything. Like if um, she was very honest, like if I talked to her about something and she would be like, you messed that up you did all this stuff wrong. You should probably go fix that. And I was like, oh, (laughs) you know, she was not the very, like she was, she was comforting and she was nice, but she was definitely very direct, which I needed where like, if I wasn't doing something correctly, like she was not going to coddle me and be like, well, maybe you should fix this. She'd be like, hey, hey, dumbass, come here. Like, (laughs) so how long did it take you to go through all 12 steps? A year. Okay. Me too. So actually, I actually took me like 18 step. months. <clears throat> yeah, I finished my 12th step or did my 12th step um, like the week of my sobriety date. Okay. Um, because I really wanted to finish it before totally. I got a year. Yeah, totally. So I always like to ask people this that have worked through the steps and it clearly impacted them like it has with you. Mm-hmm. Do you have either like a favorite step or a most impactful step? Or can you say when I did my fifth step? what really happened is not only was I able to get all of my resentments out and tell somebody why I was so mad at the world. Um, but also I got to realize a lot of my own, my own internal patterns. Um, I had never really sat down and thought about my part in everything. Uh, so when I did that, like I got to realize just how much, like I realized that my life was kind of this like cycle of things, right? Of like always doing the same thing and always having the same situations. But I didn't realize like how bad my cycles were until until I did that fifth step where like I realized that I really continuously put myself in the exact same situations, but with different people over and over and over again. And I didn't even fully realize it. And um and that in reality, like a lot of the things that happened in my life were my own fault. <laughs> and it was baffling. I was like, how could this possibly have been me? <laughs> right. But I love that you say that because that to me, that's the point of the four step. And again, it's another thing that gets a bad rap. It's so enlightening. And like, I don't know if you have a pattern that you discovered that you'd be willing to share, but like I discovered so I was 36 or whatever when I was going through the fourth step at fourth and fifth or maybe 35 and I wasn't married and I really wanted to be married. And I was like, I'm not getting married. I'm fucking getting older and I'm super pissed off that I'm not, that I'm not married. And it was like one of my biggest resentments. And I realized while I was writing it, I kept dating guys for years at a time that I knew I would never marry. I was mm. doing that and living with them, right. Making it serious or more serious. Right. And that was my pattern. And I, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to live with somebody again until I know I'm going to marry them. And I married Skylar within 18 months of understanding that pattern, right? Because I was dating a guy as I did my four-step, great guy, sober guy, that I was never going to marry. And I was doing it again. And I realized that during my four-step. Do you have a pattern that you're open to sharing? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I realized is in being that um, chameleon type of personality, Um, I realized that I had absolutely no skills in setting personal boundaries with people. Um, I would do whatever it is I needed to, to make people around me happy and at the, at the destruction of myself. 
Um, and it's still something I work on. Like this is still a pattern that has taken me time to, 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 to be better at. Um, yeah, I realized that I would, I would put myself in like, I can fix them situations. Okay. Um, and like needing to be needed, um, needed to be wanted situations, um, especially with men, but also with friends. Uh, and I had no personal boundaries, like, and it was, it was very enlightening to realize like, oh, if I would have just like stood up for myself in this situation or, or not allowed, um, these people to directly like disrespect me in this way, um, you know, or, or, or hurt me, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have acted the way that I acted. Right. You know, if I would have just been able to say like, Hey, I don't like this, then I could have saved myself a lot of pain and a lot of the, the bad situations I got myself into, but I was so afraid of people not liking me and of people being mad at me, um, that I didn't express my emotions to people, you know? And so I got myself into a lot of like, just unnecessary situations because I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything to try and like not rock the boat or, um, you know, keep the peace in the room. And in reality, like I was just hurting myself more internally, um, because I hadn't realized how to, how to speak my mind. Right. Right. Um, and that was really eye opening. And I also realized that I would put myself in situations, um, with people that I dated, um, definitely, would put myself in situations. I liked to date men who, um, who needed me. Therefore, like I realized I would date men that in my mind, I thought were quote unquote, like below me. Um, you know, like if he didn't have a job, then like that was better because then he needed me. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like if he, yeah. if he really needed a place to stay, <laughs> like, I could give you that. I have a couch. <laughs> You know, and it's like, that's not, that's not, you know, my, my standards were incredibly low because I was like, if you, if I have what you need, then you need me, right. you know, um, yeah. sober now, like I, I have a relationship now with, um, you know, I'm in a relationship with somebody now who, um, who has everything that they need without me, Yeah, which is terrifying, <laughs> <laughs> right? But also very, very healthy for me. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in a relationship now. What else does your life look like now? You've gone out on your own. You now have your own, you know, you work independently now for yourself as a stylist still. What else, like, what, what does your life look like now? Yeah. Your place is super yeah. cute. My life is crazy now. Like in, in just under two years of being sober, like I was able to move out of the like trap apartment that I was living in. Um, Taylor lived right next door to the doghouse that I lived in. Oh, <laughs> yes, so I did. Yes. I could, yeah, I could walk down. I lived in that same neighborhood. That was where yeah. I sold all the cocaine. Was in the same neighborhood. I yeah. saw the doghouse. I remember her. She knows where it was. Yeah, I know where so that is. <laughs> it was like a block from my house. <laughs> yeah, right next to Murder Park. <laughs> yeah, right next to Murder Park. Oh my God. Where's the studio? 
I could afford to pay rent for a studio. Um, and like, I, I had always wanted to booth rent and be able to like have my own business. And within six, six months of being sober, like I started doing that. Um, I quit my job at the salon that I was at before and I started my own business and that business still pays my bills today. Um, and you know, I was driving this like beat up Nissan Sentra that had like a hole in the driver's side floor and a side mirror that was falling off because I drunk driving like hit it on a trash can mm-hmm. and like the the tint was peeling and all bubbled and like my engine light was pretty much on all the time and it didn't <laughs> accelerate if it got over 85 degrees outside uh, <laughs> and and I drove that for the first like year of my sobriety because <laughs> it was just my little my little cocaine dealer car my little trap car um and and after being sober for about a year like I finally was had enough money to invest in buying myself a new car um I have done like an insane amount of traveling. I love to travel and like go camping. I've done a crazy amount of of that in the last two years. Um, I started getting involved with like young people in Alcoholics Anonymous and I've made an incredible amount of friends. I have like authentic friendships now, like people who don't, you know, just want to be my friend because they need something from me. Like it's people who genuinely care about if I'm okay and how my day is actually going and, and want to know that I'm like safe and healthy and, and, and it's just like, my life is so incredibly full. Now I have, I have people like my, you know, my own family that calls me for advice now on things. And I've been able to provide uh, that for them. Like I had my mom call me about a situation. She asked my advice and I, I didn't tell her that I was doing it, but I 12 stepped her a little bit. And I just gave her the advice that my sponsor would have given me in that situation. And her response was, oh, my God, when did you get so smart? And I was like, it's AA. (laughs) Like, I'm literally telling you what my sponsor would tell me in this situation. Um, And crazy how big my life has gotten. Like, my life before revolved around, like, Jack Daniels, a dive bar, and a pool table. And now, like you know, this weekend, I just went to a young people's conference in Anaheim surrounded with thousands of people who were sober um, and had like the most amazing fun time, you know, and it's like, I never, I never thought that like this was anything possible. I had no idea what this was going to look like when I got sober. And like, I just have such a, like, I have such a fulfilling life now you know, and like sobriety follows me everywhere, which is sometimes annoying, but, um, you know, like I do hair and I have clients that come in who like, I've never met before. And all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I'm in the program too. And I'm like, okay. You know, um, I go places and, and people will talk to me about sobriety. I go to sober events. Like my, my whole life has like become part of AA without like, in like the the best way possible, you know, like, I don't feel like I am drowning in AA. um, But like, anything that's good in my life has come from me getting sober. Now. That's so cool. So you mentioned your mom, did you so you healed your relationship with your mom, obviously, because you moved out without saying bye, but you guys are okay now. Yeah, yeah, I actually, um, it was cool. I remember, uh, we were still at a bit of a rough patch when I got sober. Um, 
but I kind of told her my story a little bit and, um, and she, you know, my mom is, is still, um, an active alcoholic. Um, but she's also, it's kind of funny. Like she's also like the biggest supporter of me being sober. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I found out recently from my aunt that like my mom has my sobriety date written in her calendar every year. Um, I know. And I was like, Oh mom. Um, she showed up when I got my year token and, and sat in a meeting and she calls them alcohol classes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, and, and it's really like, it's funny, right? Like she'll come to, you know, meetings when I take tokens and, um, and she's like, I learned so much when I'm at these classes. And I'm like, I bet you do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, and it's like, I still have learned to put up certain boundaries, right? Um, with that relationship that keep both of us sane, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And that's something I learned when it came to boundaries with that. Like, I, there are certain things that, like, I don't get to be present for, and that's okay. Um, that has created a better relationship for us. Okay. What would you say is the most important part of your recovery right now? I know they say you got to do all the things all the time, but, like, if you said, like, you know what, this is probably the most crucial element, this helps me the most, what would that be? Yeah, I'd say definitely now, like, especially recently within the last, like, month and a half, um, I've recently gained a couple more girls that I sponsor. Okay. Um, and um, I think being able to take somebody who is newly sober and start walking them through the steps has really been um, an amazing thing for me. I didn't think I was going to like sponsoring all that much, um, but, like, having somebody call me out of the blue like I did to my sponsor who I've never met before and been like, somebody gave me your number and I have five days and, like, you know, I just, I don't know what to do. Uh, they told me that I should call you, you know, and and being able to, like, get them connected and, and start walking them through the steps and seeing, like, their life begin to change and like walking them through the book the way that somebody did with me has been um, really incredible for me. And I know a lot of people um, who sponsor and a lot of people who don't. Um, and for me, though, that's been probably the best way for me to stay connected to my recovery because I work a lot um, and my life has gotten really big. And so sometimes I forget about like that little beginner tailor who was bumming cigarettes, you know, at a heroin anonymous meeting completely scared out of her mind and um and they helped me remember that like I could very easily become that girl again right and so like it's a it's a good reminder and it's fantastic to watch somebody like just be able to get life into themselves again like that's that's fantastic there's nothing that beats that yeah I love that you know you're actually the first person that has said sponsoring others is there is there a crucial element of the recovery but like I know that that's it's it is it's like a beautiful thing you know to be a part of so when someone has five days and they call you or someone's listening to this show and they've got five days what do you recommend to do next what's like the first thing you say to somebody okay do this and this is going to give you your best shot like what's your advice yeah um I have a little list that I'll send that I'll send to people who I sponsor of like these are something you should do every day um, I usually tell them like that day to like, if they want me to sponsor them, then cool. You know, like you got a sponsor. Um, but if they don't have one to, to get a sponsor, um, and I usually tell them to go to a meeting that day. And then, um, it's really as simple as like, I just start getting them connected with people, 
um, okay. because I feel like when you first get sober, at least for when I first got sober, like I didn't really have anybody, you know, like everybody around me was using except for my one friend that I called, you know, to help me get sober. And I was attached to her at the hip for like months um, because she was the only genuine friend that I had. Yeah. And and when I started to get connected with people, you know, then like other people called me and were like, how's your day? And, um, you know, and I and I just started to learn how to like have friends again, because it can be really you can feel really alone when you first get sober, you know, like your whole life is changing. And like and it's almost like a grieving process, too. Like you're letting that old person that you were kind of fade away. And that that can be kind of hard, especially to go through alone. Like I don't I didn't have somebody talk to me about that until later. And like I didn't realize that that's why I was so incredibly uncomfortable for the first like month of my sobriety is because like I had no idea who I was, you know, and um, and I felt very, very isolated and alone. And so it was like the biggest thing that helped me was like, I went to a bunch of meetings because I had nothing better to do, <laughs> you know? And I, and I got commitments and I just started like, even if I didn't talk to anybody at the meeting, like I was just surrounded by people and I wasn't at the bar. Yeah. And so it was like, you know, I just have them call me every day and, and, and we just start talking, you know? Um, because I think that was probably one of the bigger things for me, too, is, like, when people just started talking to me, just started getting me to open up just a little bit, um, really started to to change how I felt because I, I was so closed off to everyone. When did you first meet Nate? Did you already know him or did you meet him at a meeting? No, I think I met you at a meeting. Yeah, you met me at Beginners, if you want to share yeah, that. Yeah, Beginners, yeah. And then she, like, I can't remember. It was before... I almost got in that fight in the dude, with the dude at the meeting over fucking Narcan, and then uh, yeah. Uh, and were then, you there, Taylor? Yeah, I think she was there. Okay. Maybe I don't know, but yeah, that was yeah, I was there. Over. Um, <laughs> and then, and then we met, and you said something to me, and then you like gave me a hug, and we started talking about random shit. Yeah, I don't even remember what Usually it was. how it works, but it was. But yeah, no, no. But I, I got to watch Taylor like kind of grow in this and stuff like that. So yeah, it was cool. I really, no, I really don't have any questions. I just want to know what women talk about when they get their haircuts. It's like, it's like I don't even really. He's back on this shit. Because like, like I don't even really talk because they try to talk to me. I'm like, bro, this is like my relaxed time. Like, you we... know, I'll kind of chop it up, but I'm just like, bro, I just want you to cut my hair, give me the hot towel, and just let me like not think. So I would say, okay, Nate's on this, so we'll answer. I would say this. So I'm trying I... to get the secret so I can do a TikTok video later. No, okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so. I, because I'll keep the same person for a million fucking years. Like the first thing, do you remember what I asked you? So when, when Taylor was leaving the studio or the salon that I met her at, I was like, okay, are you going to get pregnant or fucking move? Because you remember that I said that to you. And I was like, because everybody in my life is getting my, is getting pregnant. And then they have to leave this. I met my studio. I can't. Yeah, I was like, had a legit, like legit mental breakdown for a moment she was like you're not gonna like get pregnant or move out of the state and like leave me and I was like well I don't have at the time I was like I don't have anybody that I'm even currently dating so unless I like spontaneously make a baby I don't plan on doing that right now and she was like okay 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 good like that's exactly how she said it too like verbatim like, that's, that's exactly how she said it and I was like that's how she talked 
I was like, I can't guarantee you that, like, one day, eventually, I might not have a child, Janine. But as of right now, I don't plan on it. She was like, well, just don't do it anytime soon. (laughs) You were literally, you were literally keeping her going. You were, like, the reason why her mental health was sustained during COVID. Like, I don't know if anybody else sees that, but, like, that was, like, her... Good it was. It no, was. I'm not saying it was. Yeah, was good she would because, come to the studio. I mean, I shaved my head during fucking COVID, so I mean, my <laughs> hair was as long as it is now. I mean, you can see it; like it's pretty fucking long. And I like shaved my head during COVID. I was a hot fucking mess. <laughs> I didn't have that relationship, obviously. So maybe I should start talking to my barber. So, <laughs> so okay. But to answer the original question, this is what I would say. Okay. Because I keep the same person forever. Right. I'll have Taylor until she gets pregnant or moves. Okay. And so, which is why I was already asking. And you're nice. I tell her what's happening in my life. We actually fully talk as the way, the way that I would talk right. to like a really close friend because I've seen her, you know, consistently for years. Right. So I would say it's just like talking to a good friend, right? Do most people confide in you in the same way that I do? Oh yeah. I've heard, yeah. heard all sorts of things. Um, that's why there's a, there's a, a non-spoken confidentiality agreement. Right. Um, when you were getting sober, did you think of me and like telling me or reaching out to me? Like, did that cross your mind? I didn't think about it in the very beginning until I saw you in my chair and I was like, oh shit, I have to tell her. (laughs) (laughs) And I was almost, I was almost like, I don't want to say the word afraid because I wasn't afraid, but I was almost like, is she going to be mad at me (laughs) that I've been using this whole time I've been doing her I can see that. Yeah, totally. I totally. I was like, is yeah. she gonna be disappointed in me? <laughs> I wasn't at all. I was so just like stoked to have you. And I was so shocked, impressed, and amazed. Like I told you, I had no idea. I knew you partied for sure on the but I thought it was like a weekend thing. You never missed a single appointment with me ever. Like you had your car, I knew you had a place. Like it never even occurred to me that maybe it was spiraling. But you just okay, you just brought up COVID and shaving your head. Yeah. We've actually never talked about this on the show. What do we think COVID did to people? It like, fucked people. I mean, if, uh, you at, it, if you, I mean, look at kids right now. Like, from I mean, I could, I could rant on this forever. But <laughs> I mean, I mean, as far as like mental health and stuff goes, right? Um, but it isolated us, and I, I yeah. think, I think for for people that either, because I mean, I've seen people that had like. 30 this is why i don't this is i'm gonna go on my time concept i've seen people with 30 fucking year like successful like some people own fucking treatment centers come in because they got loaded again during you, COVID. yeah during covid because yeah. people like didn't yeah. know what the fuck to do and we were forced to sit with ourselves and it was either it was either you fucking adapted or you got fucked and i, I hate well, to say that, that that is that like brings, the really honest truth that brings me back to what I had said about what was crucial to my sobriety, which was getting connected to people. Like um, a big part of sobriety, I know for a lot of people is the fact that we have this connection and we have the ability to be surrounded by other alcoholics and other addicts and, and talk about things. And, and COVID took that away, you know, and they had zoom meetings, but it wasn't the same. Like I wasn't able to like physically, you know, not that I was sober at the time, right? Because I got sober, like, right when COVID was, the lockdown was, like, kind of ending-ish. Um, but I know from talking to a lot of people, like, who were who were sober at the time or, or, or made it through COVID, like, that, that lack of inability to connect with people 
you know, to not be able to go to your home group meeting and, and hug the people who, who love you and who support you through your sobriety and, and be able to like have a face-to-face like conversation, um, was detrimental to a lot of people. And it made it really, really hard for people to, um, to get through it. And I know like for me, you know, like my using went through the roof because, I had no, I had nothing to do. Like I was, I was, I was like, I was fucked. Like I had, I had nothing to do but party. Like, you know, and I know a lot of people who got sober because of COVID because the same thing happened to them. Like they they could have been semi, semi Mm semi-functioning like I was. And then you took all the structure away and the thing that kept us semi-functioning and, and we just, spiraled you know it was like it was like getting a getting a free pass to be an asshole like (laughs) totally yeah no responsibilities but you still got some money coming in I think the only thing that saved me was well I mean you know I guess I shouldn't say the only thing but a huge part of it was the studio I still had an incredible amount of structure and responsibility we had classes every day either on zoom or outside I didn't lose my structure actually I still went to work every single day through the three-month lockdown and after that And yeah, I I just, I think that we will continue seeing the effects of COVID for, you know, years to come in the recovery world as people like, you know, come in and we're definitely like knocked into a a further state of chaos, like you said, during that time. And 12-step, dude, has taken such a hit. Like all the meetings I've been trying to find again and go to, there are attendances, a third of the people that were at these meetings um, that's why I texted you. I was asking you, where do I fucking yeah. go, Taylor? I know you've been, yeah, I, yeah. I'm like, I don't even know where to go anymore because what I, I was drowning at the studio. I wasn't going to meetings, but the studio was actually keeping me clean. I think I didn't realize that at the time. Now, yeah, I see that. Um, and it's like that's still like, I mean, I wasn't around before COVID, you know, in the program, but I've heard from people that like there are so many meetings that died off. You know, oh, and, yeah, it killed it. It fucking killed it. And now, like, you know, I just, like I said, I just went to this convention over the weekend. Like, I feel like this year has finally been the year where, like, everybody is comfortable, like, fully comfortable with, like, really going out and doing life again. Like, I feel like last year we kind of eased, like, the first year we eased into it, last year was like, all right, we're good. And this year it's like, all right, you know. Agreed. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's in public without somebody looking at you like they're going to fucking. Yeah. Well, they're officially ending and not to like, you know, I won't express any like political feelings here, but I am glad about this. Uh, May 15th, they're officially ending the state of emergency in the United States. Like the, you know, the presidential administration. And I'm like, good, let's, let's just move on. And I understand though that 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 was important for a while for resources, but it's like, let's officially move on. Yeah, a lot of the um, the big fellowship activities had kind of like died off. Like people weren't going out to dinner after meetings and and hanging out with yeah. each other. They weren't going to coffee shops and meeting up. They weren't, you know, all those little things that like kept connections going. And so it's like now, just now, finally, like people are starting to do that again. And I think that's a that's a huge part of it. You know, like there's you know, there's like doing your, 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 you know, talking to your sponsor and going to your meetings and like doing the things you're supposed to do, you know, or treatment or whatever it is. Um, 
and um you know and they say helping others and and being of service and all that stuff but like um people were missing a vital part of the meeting of, after of, the meeting right is what yeah, they call yeah, it the the, meeting the, after the meeting. that's really some of the meeting part yeah you know that's a, that, i feel like that's a crucial thing to to really gaining like a sobriety family you know a support group you know and if you don't have that it can it can be really hard it's not impossible but it can be really hard right mm-hmm. yeah Thank you so much, dude. Do you have anything? Yeah. Um, no, I can't think of anything else. I'm just gonna be quiet. I'm all, I'm all yacked on coffee, so I'm like, really... are you? You seem very calm. No, I'm like, in you my, seem in less the... anxious today. You only bit your nails once for like yeah, yeah, two I know, minutes. I know, I know, I know. I'm living less. Damn, no, I'm inside fine. I'm like yacked, but, oh, I'm, but you I'm, seem okay. I'm like controlling. I'm being controlled. okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. Good. Control. <laughs> I'm like boomsawing like in my head. I'm okay, like, don't good. say everything that's coming through. <laughs> You want to add anything, Taylor, for for our audience, or anything else you want to say that we that I didn't ask? Um, I mean, not that I can think of. I felt like I've talked a lot. <laughs> you have talked a lot. You did amazing. This was really, really good. This is why I'm. I thank you so much for your time, Taylor. If people want to connect with you. Um, where would they find you? Um, so I do have Instagram. Um, it is Taylor Ray Hair Design. It's spelled R A E. Um. Okay. So you can connect with me through there. Um, that's probably the easiest way yeah. to way to find me. Okay, cool. Well, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah.